But finding people with the personality, you know, we find there's a small subset of uh, people that we discover that go, you know, I'm in technology, I like it, but I really can't see myself working at a desk and programming every day and just sitting in an office. And when we educate them on what this career is like, it, I mean, it's like their eyes just get wide open and they think, I never realized that was out there. Welcome to Pre-Sales Heroes, which is from Vivin, the world's first platform for pre-sales. Today we're talking to Scott Wood, VP of North American Pre-Sales at Hewlett Packard Enterprises. Scott is a 32-year veteran of that company and has over 600 pre-sales people on his team. Hi, I'm Greg Howard, and I'm thrilled to welcome Scott Wood, VP of North American Pre-Sales at Hewlett Packard. Scott, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You're calling from Connecticut, right? I am. It's uh, warm here for a change. We don't get this that, that often uh, during the year, so it's nice to, uh, nice to be in a little heat wave. We always like to start out by finding our guest's hero origin story, what brought them into pre-sales and why they stayed and, and how they climbed the ranks. In your case, Scott, it's really interesting because you actually started directly in pre-sales and then moved up the ranks. Uh, I'm, uh, can you tell me about, about that journey, how you did it, and how you were so promotable? Uh, yeah, so uh, glad to comment on it. It's kind of kind of interesting because, as you said, I I really started actually right out of uh, college, and I was a computer science and math major in in college, and probably you know at one point going down a traditional line thinking I'd be a programmer. Uh, interviewed with a company called Hewlett Packard at the time, and I remember coming back, and I was fortunate that my father was always in sales. He at the time, so this is probably 32 years ago, he was a, a sales leader or a branch office manager, um, was always in component sales, so something electronic related. But I remember coming home and he's uh, telling about, you know, interviewing with HP and he said, hey, is there any of these roles like a field application engineer? He goes, I work with a lot of technical people that are out there in the field helping me out. And I really didn't know much about it. So I, I called back the recruiter at the time and I I said, hey, I was talking to my father and you know, enjoyed the interview, but do you have anything like this? You know, and I, I think at the time he called it a field application engineer. They go, well, we have these jobs that are called systems engineering. It's not the group that I work with, but I'd be glad to kind of refer you over to some of those, um, those various leaders. So he did that. And then I had a chance to interview with uh, a group out of Connecticut and a group out of Cleveland, Ohio, and, and came back and um, got a call back from both places, actually. And told my dad, I said, hey, what should I do? He said, you know, we, we were living in Michigan. He said, go east or go west to learn something new. You can always come back home some other time. So uh, I did that and went east, uh, went out to Connecticut and um, have actually very surprisingly been with the company for uh, coming up on 32 years, which is kind of unique as well. So uh, it's been pretty interesting. They were, they were willing to train you from the ground up to do that kind of work. I mean, usually people kind of come into that role with a you know some sort of sales skills or technical skills, but you, you just kind of uh, learned everything on the job? Yeah. You know, it wasn't a formal program and, and I'll share a little bit, maybe in a minute, why I, I'm kind of, kind of so passionate about having an opportunity to give back, but um, it was, you know, coming in individually in an office and, you know, maybe going in a little bit of the harder way. A lot of people, as you said, sometimes come to pre-sales from a customer experience or come from a product engineering and then move into more of a sales been. So coming out of school, it was a little bit longer of a development plan to, to get going. But, you know, started uh, getting exposed to technology at the time. A lot of our offices had equipment in it. You know, that's kind of a, a thing gone away uh, these days is everyone's <laughs> kind of virtual and remote and 
and just, you know, technology access is different as well. So, you know, you start and learn the technology, start with very small customers, maybe in a little bit more of a supportive pre-sales role. And then, you know, I remember clearly working my way up and there's a big, big deal a year into it when you get fielded and fielded meant you got your car. So uh, up until you were fielded, you didn't get to drive the company car. So that was a big deal. It's like, mom, dad, I got a company car. Um, and then you, you know, slowly work up and supported, you know, larger and larger accounts. And then, um, you know, through my time at the company, I've just been fortunate to have a lot of different experiences working in different parts of the business, all, all within pre-sales or um, consulting services at the time or professional services, but just a great opportunity to get exposed to all different parts of the portfolio and product and platforms. Yeah, for sure. Well, particularly in a 32-year run, I'm sure you had lots of those opportunities for exposure. Do they still have company cars at HP? You know, we we do. We're one of the few that do. They keep kind of raising the mileage limit every year on what you have to do to, to, to have one. But um, yeah, our uh, our field teams and you know all our people that start today do get company cars still. So, I think before we, before we go to the uh, program that you started uh, to recruit college grads, I mean, it's a long run and you've, you've been incredibly successful. What do you, what do you think you did early in your career to kind of rise to the ranks at HP the way you did? Yeah. You know, I, it's interesting. I've been asked that question a couple of times in different forms I've participated in. I think about it and, you know, I think there are a couple of things I can kind of take away. One is, uh, especially at a company, you know, like an HP or HP Hewlett Packard Enterprise now, which is what we go by, but uh, you have to be able to be collaborative and work with people. So um, you've got to realize that, you know, the, the team you're working with one day could be a team you're working as part of or reporting to another day. And it's really important, I think, to build those relationships and collaborative relationships where people feel like they can work with you and really enjoy working with you and you're part of the team and solving problems. I also think you have to be able to represent a strong opinion and have opinions on things and have a point of view and participate not just be a part of it, but if you're going to be invited, you're going to work with something, you know, be seen as somebody who brings leadership or thought leadership or ideas or new opinions and collaborate with people over, over a long period of time. If you can't work well with others, yeah, you know, it gets to be a problem. And I think sometimes people come in and, you know, very head down, like I'm driving this and this is the only thing that's important. And when you work in a, a larger company and um, a matrix company, you have to figure out a way to kind of drive and lead, but also collaborate and, and work well with people. Yeah, that's a great point. And pre-sales particularly touches so many other important parts of the organization that if they don't have those collaboration skills on top of their technical skills or even their storytelling and demo skills, they're, they're, they're not going to go far. And I, and I would just add, I mean, I think, you know, I think those are part of the soft skills in doing it, but you also have to be able to deliver results, you know, whether you're in a pre-sales environment or sales environment or product or marketing or in any company, uh, it's not just about, you know, getting along with people and, and having effective, but balancing that ability and delivering results and, and being able to view things beyond just your role. So that's been really kind of brought out to me recently of, you know, you have to be able to think beyond just what your function is. And can you think about what's good for the company, good for the team, good for the organization? I think a lot of those things go into helping you build your career and working up and continuing to progress through leadership. So moving on to something I know you're really passionate about, actually because of your uh, your background and how you started at HPE, uh, I know you're very invested in a program you started, which is to recruit uh, college grads and, and new people into pre-sales. Can you tell me a little bit about that? 
Yeah, great. I'm re- I'm really excited about this, and it's something that's been a passion a passion of mine. It's like I said, you know, I just feel like I've had such a great opportunity and career. And gosh, wouldn't it be great if we could, you know, develop that next generation of pre-sales people and give people the same kind of exposure I had? And realizing that it is a difficult job to kind of go right into. I think in the sales um, world, we tend to do a little bit better job of you know recruiting people out and they put them in inside sales and they work and develop and different ways that people come, but it hasn't been as much focus in pre-sales. I think a lot of that is because you can maybe be a newer salesperson, but when you're the pre-sales person, you've got to have credibility in front of the customer. So they tend not to want to hire as many people who are fresh out of school as a way. And they, they, there's not a lot of structure or ways to develop them. So very interested in trying to do that. And uh, finally, um, when I got to one of my uh, higher leadership roles, you know, my boss, I shared that desire with my manager at the time. He said, yeah, I'd love to see that happen. Go develop it. And, you know, at which point I kind of had the ability to kind of make it happen myself. But we got together and really put some thought in how we wanted to do this. And we had a we had a few little mixed ups in the, or missteps in the very beginning. But we really focused around, um, we do it by classes. So we're on our eighth year of doing this now. And we hire classes and we actually bring people in. And this is, this is a pretty big investment we're making people. We bring them into location. We actually bring them into Alpharetta, Georgia. And we do that because we also have a solution center. And part of it is you bring people in. We want to give them hands-on experience because they may not get that that they would have from a customer. So how do we make sure they can touch and feel the equipment, work with the software, work with real data center environments, and, and really learn from that standpoint. So we bring them in and we actually develop and train people for for nine months and then we put them into a three-month uh field rotation and then we kind of quote field them into one of their permanent jobs so during that nine months you know we really take people who are coming out of school and you know they may be a computer science and engineering sometimes it's a, a computer business or it management kind of field you know, we have to teach them a lot because this is a different kind of job. So sometimes it's a technology, it's a lot of the technology and certifications and hands-on they need. It's the selling skills uh, that are really important, um, including a lot of presentations. So we do uh, a lot of reputation of presentations because when you're in pre-sales, to be really effective, you've got to be effective in front of customers. You have to be able to persuade people and you've got to be a good presenter. And there's nothing better then to train you how to do it and have you do it over and over and over and over and over do so. I mean, several times a week, people are up in front of people presenting and just have seen some really great success. And we even go as far as, you know, having to teach them how to behave at dinner and act at dinner. And um, yeah, so it's, 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 it's pretty what, common. What are, the, what are the, some of the, the dinner skills you, you teach to avoid mistakes you've seen in the past? Well, you know, they, they teach them all the basics on how to behave, how to order the proper way. But I mean, just simple things like, you know, probably one of the biggest things people learn is how do you handle your napkin when you get up from a, from a dinner table? Like, what do you do with it? You know, and I think when you see uh, a lot of the, the young adults we have that are coming right out of school, you know, they tend to want to get up and think, I'm just going to, you know, put that napkin right down on the table. And, you know, we, we actually have an outside person that teaches an etiquette. Uh, session for like a day or two on a couple of different topics, probably a day class. But, um, you know, they teach them how to properly fold that and put it down and get back. And there's always a little trick. And I will say I learned this later in my life, but like which side is the bread side and which 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 is a bread side, which is a drink side. And I don't know if anyone's ever told you, but it's the old one where you hold your two fingers up and you make a B and a D. And if you pull, put your index finger and your thumb together, you know, your, your bread's on the left and your drink's on the right. So, uh, 
I have never actually heard that before. That's yeah, actually I, a, I tell you, I learned a good it. trick. It's like, you know, you just look at your hands and you kind of pinch your fingers and one makes a B and one makes a D. It's like, okay, that's my blood. My, that's my bread tray. And that's my drink. That's my water glass. So, uh, uh, I remember I learned that about a decade ago and I thought I never knew that either. And I always wonder when I sit down for dinner, which one am I supposed to grab? So I don't take the person's next to me. I, I was about to say people should come out of college knowing these things, but actually this is pretty detailed. So I, I, I have to admit that that was a new one for me. When you think about, it's always interesting to hire for for people who are just starting out because, of course, they don't have a track record of success. I'm, I'm kind of curious when you think about, you know, selling skills, some of the things you look for in these people that you know are going to make them successful in the program. What are the, some of the, thing, the things you look for or screen for when you're interviewing? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Greg, you mentioned that because, you know, these are things we learn. Like we learn that, you know, traditional job fairs are just limited effectiveness for us, limited hmm. in finding candidates. Um, because, you know, people come there with certain expectation of jobs and we get a lot of people who maybe just want to be a programmer. And, for, you know, we're looking for really a combination of three things. One, we need to have somebody that's got some core technical aptitude. I mean, we can train you in a lot, but I tend to shy away from some of the degrees that are not technology-based um, just because you don't, you don't have this under lying understanding of kind of some concepts and it's easy for us to go and teach you a lot of things but you know there's only so much you can be taught and it's nice when they come in with some understanding from school that basic technology so that's one piece we tend to look at you know computer science computer engineering um we'll we'll look at an mit kind of or an it kind of um career field so usually something really math we actually have really good success with people with math when they combine it with something tends to be very successful so it's that piece of it but finding people with the personality you know we find there's a small subset of uh, people that we discover that go you know i'm in technology i like it but i really can't see myself working at a desk and programming every day and just sitting in an office and when we educate them and what this career is like, it, I mean, it's like their eyes just get wide open and they think, I never realized that was out there. Chance to work with people, be engaged, work with the sales teams, work with customers, be in front and present. You know, every day is different. You got to be kind of self-motivated if you're going to be in the field. So that is a tough thing for us to get. And what we found is the most effective is getting a chance to develop relationships with universities, uh, developing relationships with different deans of schools, and being able to go in and you know provide that information session and talk to people ahead of doing interviews and exposing people that would never come to maybe a, a career fair because they're looking for a certain kind of thing or not realize that the job's there. Uh, and then once we once we start hiring out of university, we really leverage the, the people we. Um, the alumni that we've hired from there to go back and help us recruit other people. But that personality piece, you know, you can, you can tell it pretty quickly. Like I've gone to a number of those job career fairs myself, you know, within about, you know, 20 seconds, whether you're going to spend more time, you just, you get an idea of somebody who wants to be a programmer, sits and do that, or somebody who is uh, really engaged and outgoing and has a nice blend of technology mix. So, you know, trying to feel that. And then we look for a lot of things like, you know, self-motivator and leadership skills and stuff that they've demonstrated while they go through school. I, you know, I really love that insight. I mean, you, you made such an important point that the skill set is important and you, and you look for that, but it's really the motivation. And just like you're saying, the best you know, pre-sales people I've known have wanted to be kind of out and about. They, they have the technical skills. They don't want to sit and code. 
and trying to unlock that and in, a person who's just starting out. And like you said, seeing their eyes light up, you, know, you probably know you have the right person there because you, you can train skills to some extent, but you can't train motivation. So yeah, it's that's, very uh, unique. You know, it's not the job either. If you look at most universities and you look at uh, careers you can go in, into, this is seldom uh, listed there. Most people don't know about it. So uh, I know many of my colleagues in the industry and in some, you know, different forums and conferences that we've been a part of spend a lot of time thinking about just how do you, how do you educate people, make people aware of this as a career option that it becomes important. Yeah. But, and in he, fact, that's where I first met Matt. That was part of a, a company, Herald, that I know is, uh, or Vivin, sorry, with Product Herald that I know is, uh, we were at one of those sessions and we had a lot of discussions just about how do you, um, how do you make people aware of these fields and these positions and these careers and just a, a lot of that thought in the industry that, that goes on. So let's talk a little bit about, about your, uh, you know, kind of your, your current present day, uh, your, in your, in your role, you lead over, I think, 600 pre-sales people are reporting uh, in your organization structure, which is, which is massive. Uh, I'm curious, uh, Scott, kind of what you sort of look to, to kind of measure the success and productivity of those people. How do you, how do you kind of structure um, and measure what that team is doing? So, you know, that things are on track with an organization that large. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting because when you um, are in a smaller company, I think it gets pretty easy. And over over my career, we've done a number of acquisitions and acquired, you know, pre-sales teams that have come through these acquisitions. And it's pretty easy. And there's kind of a common formula that most companies start up with, right? It's hire a salesperson, team them with a pre-sales person, put them in a geography or a patch and have them cover and sell. And, you know, that that is effective when you're especially a little bit more of a single product company or just, you know, a single um, product category company. Um, and you're kind of starting up when you become a larger organization, when you become um, multidimensional, you know, multi-products, uh, selling solutions and industry focuses, product technology focuses, you really do find you have to change. And I see it with most larger companies. They get in this idea of specialization versus somebody that can represent the product. And uh, it gets a lot more complicated in how you measure and, and look at success because you could be a person out there that it maybe owns a customer relationship so you can tie your success to how well you do at a customer and your sales results or customer satisfaction results there. But then you also realize you have to develop all these specialty resources. And how do you really start to measure and reward them? So I think like a lot of companies, where we have sales teams that you have, or pre-sales teams, where you have a clear line of sight to a customer or customer segment or territory, we do leverage, you know, that traditional way of, um, you know, whether it's, you know, revenue, recurring revenue, quota kind of aspects. So, so those metrics, and there's a clear line of sight. But what we've had to spend a lot of time on is what about what about that level of expertise where somebody's maybe responsible for a workload or a solution or, um, you know, just a certain technology that crosses different products and you need that level of expertise. So that's where we really have spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, how do you, how do you measure that? Because sometimes at a company, you can't count those things, right? Those are not as countable as a product. And especially if you're trying to do a workload or a solution that crosses products, you know, one, most companies don't measure that real well. And I think they struggle. But so we've worked on a lot of different plans and, you know, how do you create a um, kind of maybe a different kind of bonus selling plan? And then how do you measure those things that they're selling? And what what's the role of managers? Because I think when you get into those plans, 
a manager becomes much more important in the rigor that they set and the goals and objective of that employee. Because now you're not just evaluating maybe a ranking on it, but you're tying their compensation to it. So there's an idea of fairness and accuracy uh, that you're tracking. So, um, you know, I look at managing pre-sales, kind of a common interview question I ask a lot of people is, hey, you know, if you're a pre-sales leader, what's on your dashboard? And I often look at, does somebody have a comprehensive view are they viewing it as a general manager? You know, obviously you got your sales results and success, but what about your enablement? What about your training? What about your internal sales relationships? What about your working with the business units? Uh, what about your relationship with your sales managers? What about the initiatives you're driving? So for me, I try to evaluate my leadership team around that kind of comprehensive list, right? It's not just one dimensional. You got to be very multidimensional. There's a dashboard of five or six things that become very important. And then when we get down to the SAs, it's the same thing. It's more than, and we call them SA solution architects generically. Some people right. just call them systems engineers, but you know, there's getting your quota or meeting your goals or revenue, but there's all other kinds of initiatives that you have to drive. And um, one of the things we do is try to bring some focus on it. So we we run a program. We just kind of named it our FP3. And, and different companies have different ways that they do this. But we talk about it's your focus. What, what are your focus on your priorities, your products, and your programs for that quarter? Um, and the idea is there's a lot of things asked of you. And everything else just starts to blend together. So we try to give focus. And I think the best thing you can do is say, look, for, for this quarter, in addition to your day job and everything you do, here's no more than three ever. Here's three things that I also want you to focus on. And then we've built some systems in place to kind of capture that and see how people are doing against those goals and objectives every quarter, which are complementary to the, the business goals. So those, those kind of come down for you from the business. Uh, and so then you sort of add them on on a quarterly basis. You almost don't know what they are until the quarter ends and you know what the new priorities are. Yeah, well, um, I drive my team um, you know, because I have a team of people that cover different business units, cover different product categories. And so, you know, the goal as a pre-sales leader, what I want you to do is work across your sales leadership, work across your business unit leadership, work across, you know, what we kind of call uh, category teams together, understand what that priority is for our geography, and then make sure we're aligned with those key initiatives. In the past, there's a lot of times where, you know, marketing would run a bunch of initiatives and then, you know, pre-sales would have our own initiatives and say, we really need to be connected so that everyone's driving the same things and we're not tearing our teams apart, asking them to do too many things. So I asked my leaders to get aligned with their sales or business unit leaders and, and marketing. And then let's grab two or three out of there. And then that's what I evaluate them on. And, and then you're right, every quarter, you know, we'll kind of complete those. We may carry one over for another quarter, but then say, okay, this is a focus. It should be something that's short term, that is a priority that's going to be driven. You know, I think Jack Welch said in one of his book, you can never really drive more than three priorities at a time. So once you get beyond that, nothing becomes a priority. So that's what we try to do. In addition to kind of the, the common uh, dashboards and initiatives that you just described, maybe it's interesting to also talk about the cultural dimension of a team that large. How do you how do you kind of make everybody in that group feel like they're they're part of the same team when you have uh, that that many um, SAs and, and and leaders running the running the ship? Yeah, you know that's not um, that's not an easy thing as you bring it up. I think about some of the acquisitions we've had, and through those acquisitions, that's been one of the biggest challenges. Is you know people come in with a real identity of a company. And then you have the, the company that's acquiring, like in our case, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, 
and you have a, a culture that's developed through, um, you know, through years and you bring in a company that's got a little different culture and, and what is the right way? And I also don't think it's the right way to just overwhelm people and try to force people in. I think you got to recognize what has made some of these other companies successful that you're bringing in. But if you come in with the idea that we're going to operate separately and individually and leave us alone, you're usually not going to be as successful integrating into a company. You can have some success, but long-term and to get the value out of a, of an acquisition, you've got to get integrated. So you get the leverage factor, you know, in our case, a lot of the times require a company that are small and we're trying to integrate them into our larger go to market. So if you don't build those relationships and connect it becomes a, very difficult. I have found just personally, the sooner you can integrate, the better. The sooner you can make people feel like one part of a team, the better. Uh, some people have an idea of keep this separate. We don't want to mess it up, right? They're really successful. Keep it separate. I find that over you know six to nine months, people start to feel a little bit um, isolated, uh, start to feel like they're kind of questioning what's going to happen. So, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to bring that in. I think it's it's one personal effort and energy by all the leadership to get to know people, share the culture that you have, share what's important, make people understand that it's all about individuals. When you come into a bigger company and, you know, I've worked at HP when it's been 300,000 people and, you know, now we're maybe at 60,000, which is still really large compared to a lot of places. It's a big company, but it's usually made up a lot of smaller groups and organizations within it. And you can still bring that same kind of personal touch and feel. And the more you can make it personal and they don't think it's about us versus them and it's real people and people care. And you can, I I ask my managers to spend a lot of time on that. Like when we, we do it as that personal time with people and whether it's some of the events we run and we run a couple, you know, one or two annual events that people get together in person. And, you know, those things really help bring together the culture as well, Greg. It sounds like you're, you have a kind of, kind of a playbook for bringing those groups together when you do uh, an acquisition so that everybody sort of starts to eventually feel like part of the same organic team. Kind of develops over time. I think when you, because um, I've, you know, I've kind of wondered, I've seen it gone multiple ways within our company and I've seen a little bit of success with each, but then over the time you say, well, what, what, what are the driving factors that really make it work? And, you know, we had one two years ago where they were going to go separate. I said, you know, we're going to lose a pre-sales team if we don't integrate them quickly. Like I can already see it happening. And, you know, some of their leaders had had left or people leave and said, we just got to integrate it. And one acquisition we brought, we brought the, um, pre-sales team in earlier than the sales team and everything else, just because I think everyone recognized that the pre-sales organization was better prepared to do that. And we said, you know, we can move now and bring them in. And I, I think it, it did really help with the integration. Scott, maybe one last question for you. Just uh, just thinking about your, your your long career at HP. I mean, you started out, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a brand new pre-sales person. Now you're, you're leading this team of hundreds of people. What do you, what do you, what would you have told your, um, your, your younger self back then uh, in terms of what you've learned from your standpoint now uh, that you wish you had known back then before embarking on this journey? You know, I think it's, I, I, I probably, if I were to think back, it's the, the value of um, relationships and building connections across an entire company and, and don't stay as focused in your own ecosystem um, when you're starting off. And I think the more you can be aggressive and saying, you know what, I need to develop these key contact points and I need to put energy into those relationships as I'm developing my career, starts to position you for greater growth in your own career. Because the one thing that, you know, you kind of learn afterwards is you never know where that support system is going to come from for your next step. 
your next move in your career. And you may be thinking, hey, I'm, I'm really focused my energy here and I'm not branching out and building relationships or collaborating and, and having some of the connections I need because this is my job and this is my team and we're focused here and really good. And then you wonder, it's like, why can't I make that next step? It's like, well, because those decisions are usually made by a number of people that come from different perspectives. And if you haven't nurtured those relationships, taking on additional projects, uh, you know, working on cross-functional teams so that other people can say, yeah, we really think highly of that person or we know what they're capable of. That gives you a much better chance to, to develop and grow your career. I, I learned that as we went. I, I kind of learned it fairly quickly. I would think in the very beginning, it's easy to think of, you know, hey, I'm doing a good job. I'm here. I got these relationships that, you know, my local sales teams that I work with. But what are you doing about certain relationships in a business unit or things that you don't know that are going to become important may become important the next year and you didn't realize it. And I kind of coach people today on that is think about that sphere of influence that you have. And how wide is your sphere and um, what are you doing to develop it? Yeah, your that advice is so universal. I remember somebody t- telling me that he spent the first half of his career building his network and the second half living off it, which is a, 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 great, simplica- great a simplification of what you're saying. But I mean, the, the network and the relationships is what carries you to the next level. Yeah. Scott, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to, to me today. It was fantastic. Hope you have a, a terrific sunny day in Connecticut. I'm extremely jealous. Yeah, there you go. Well, thank you. I know it's very difficult. Uh, there are very different times that we're working in. and um, But, you know, I see a lot of people with great attitudes and realizing, you know, we, we know there, there'll be an end to this eventually. And, you know, I think people are, are pretty optimistic. So, yeah, I feel exactly the same. Scott, thanks so much. No, thanks, Greg.